And all of God's people say amen to that video, like last week's. Amen to that video. William Duffield wrote that hymn that you just sang, Stand Up, Stand Up for Jesus. He wrote it 200 years ago, and it is quite obvious from the writing of that hymn that there was something going on in his life or in the life of his congregation that prompted him to write that hymn which his congregation sang the following week. Stand up, stand up for Jesus. When you enter week number three of your study on the book of Philippians, this is what you will bump into. You'll bump into the Apostle Paul in the year 62 A.D. saying to the church at Philippi, Stand up, stand up for Jesus. The difficult times have come. They will get worse before they get better. But you stand up, stand up for Jesus. The sermon is entitled, Joy in the Worst of Times. I shared with you last week how deeply the Apostle Paul, writing from a prison cell in Rome, I shared with you how deeply he loved the church at Philippi. He had established it 13 years earlier, in the year 49 A.D., some 16 years after our Lord had left this earth and gone up to heaven. In the initial verses of that letter, we pointed out the warmth that was coming forth from his pen, and that warmth was coming straight from his heart. He puts down his pen as he's writing, because all of a sudden he sees Lydia's face, And he sits and wonders 13 years later, what does Lydia look like now? He sees the face of the wealthy entrepreneur, the seller of purple, who had come to know Jesus on the banks of the Gangites River. She has all this money, she has this business, maybe she's given seminars on entrepreneurship. But she never found Jesus in her wealth or in her business or in the conferences she held. It reminds me of Jeremiah. He says, Let not the wise man find Jesus in his wisdom. Let not the strong man try and find Jesus in his strength, charisma, power, connections. And let not the rich man try and find Jesus in his wealth. Lydia found Jesus on the banks of that river, when the Apostle Paul opens up his mouth and pours forth the story of Jesus. And then Paul picks up his pen and he starts to write again, but not for too long, because now he puts it down. He's seeing the face of the servant girl. She's not eight or nine years of age anymore. It's 13 years later. She's in her early 20s. And he remembers the first time he met her casting out the demon that possessed her. Now, in her early 20s, still rejoicing, still serving the Lord Christ, whose power had delivered her from the demon. There is a verse in the Bible that she knew the truth of, because she had lived it. And when, on a Sunday morning, someone would preach from 1 John 5, 4, 
For all I know, she stood up in the congregation, held up her hand, and said, That was me. 1 John 5, 4. Everyone born of God has overcome the world, because the one in you, namely Jesus, is stronger than the one in the world, namely Satan. And how many times did she stand up when that verse was read and say to the people gathered there, Let me tell you my story. The power of Satan controlled me. The demon was in me. But when the Apostle Paul spoke God's word, the one, uh, Jesus, stronger than the one in the world. And for the first time in my life, I knew what peace was because Jesus had come. And he picks up the pen and he begins to write again and he lays it down because all of a sudden he sees the jailer. And he sees his family sitting in the pews like the families over here. And he remembers that man. He remembers singing at midnight and the jailer comes and says, Are you crazy? You're singing at midnight and they've beaten you half to death. And then no sooner does he say that than the earthquake comes. And the jailer goes to his office, draws his sword. Paul follows him and says, Do not harm yourself. The same God who allowed us to sing at midnight, that same God has corralled the prisoners. No one has escaped. If you want to go walking through the jail, you can count every prisoner. No one is left. And the jailer says to him, The God you have has more power than any God I've ever studied, taught, or heard about. I want your God. How do I have Him? And Paul said simply in the middle of the night, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Paul is reminiscing about all of these individuals, so precious to God and so precious to the apostles. His emotions overtake him in his writing. He ends up doing what most do when they're overcome by emotion. He keeps repeating himself. And then he stops. Because his mood changes in the letter. Changes very quickly. He must get on to heavier, darker matters. There are problems that have arisen in this baby church. They have arisen, they're only going to get more difficult and prominent. And they will come against Lydia. And they will come against a 21-year-old servant girl. And they will come against the jailer and his family. What problems shall arise, what suffering will they go through? Will they survive the suffering? Will the suffering bring them a stronger faith? Will it bring them a more mature character? Because that's what suffering does. It matures us quickly. We can go all the parties we want to go to. We can have all the celebrations we want to have. They do not help us mature. They do not help us understand life. It's when the trials come that we understand life. And we will go one of two directions. We will either hibernate and hide ourselves away from society, or we will grow because of the trial we've been through. 
Apostle Paul puts it this way. Look at the cover of your bulletin. That's Romans 5, 2. Tells us to rejoice always. And the very next verse is Romans 5, 3. And it says, rejoice in your suffering. Because suffering, Lydia and jailer and servant girl, suffering produces perseverance in your faith. And perseverance in your faith produces a stronger, more mature character within you. You grow up quickly when you go through suffering. Produces perseverance, character, and it produces hope. What is the definition for the word hope? It is attached to periods when there is no hope. And then hope comes. For the Christian, when suffering comes, initial reaction, there is no hope, there is no way out. But because we believe in our Lord and Savior, that magic word hope pops up quickly. And the stronger your faith, Matthew 17, the stronger your faith, you say to whatever mountain has come up, move because I have hope in the King of kings and Lord of lords. He has opened up Red Seas for me before, and He'll open up a Red Sea here. That is the church at Philippi at the time that He is writing. What suffering has come to these dear people. Jesus spoke a parable 30 years earlier. That's why I chose that gospel reading for today. Because that's the episode I wanted to talk about for a moment. Jesus talks about a sower sowing seed. Some falls on thorns, some falls on rocky soil. You know what happens to the seed. Some falls on fertile soil. Mark 4, 16 and 17, he said, For that seed that falls on rocky soil, when trouble or persecution comes, Those who heard the word quickly fall away. What will happen to these people at Philippi? Will they fall away from their faith? After 13 years of existence, will the trials that come to them, will it shut down the church? Will Lydia say, I didn't expect this, I'm gone. Will the servant girl say, this isn't much better than it was 13 years ago when I was possessed by the demon. I'm going to walk away. Will the jailer and his family say, we thought we had something in God, but I guess we're mistaken. What will happen to this church when suffering comes? Or will they grow stronger than ever before? Stand up. Stand up. For Jesus. There was a gentleman a number of years ago, 25 years ago perhaps. I had not not seen him in church in three or four years. I tried to reach out to him, got no response. Messages not returned, mail not returned. And all of a sudden he was there. He was there for six weeks in a row. And I cornered him after the second week, and I said, it's so good to see you back. After six weeks, he disappeared again. 
He hadn't been here in three weeks. I drove by his house. I said, just wanted to check on you. He said to me at the front door, he said, the reason I came back is because I was diagnosed with Parkinson's disease. And I figured that if I started praying again, if I started coming back to church, that God would halt the progression of the illness, or maybe he'd take it away completely. He said, Pastor, I just got a report three weeks ago, and it said the disease is advancing quickly. He said to me as we stood by the front door, I'm so angry at God, and I'm so angry at you. Would you please leave? What will suffering do to an individual? I sat and contemplated this past week. I would assume that 80% of the 800 families in this congregation, I would assume that 80% are suffering with something right now. In the realm of grief, realm of finances, realm of relationships, realm of children or grandchildren or siblings or parents, I would assume that 80% in this congregation are suffering with something right now. And maybe 20% are saying, this is a great time in my life. And if 80% of you are suffering, what direction will you head? As you're listening online at 9.30 and 11, or if you're in the building, what direction will you head? Lydia, the servant girl, and the jailer and his family, and the rest in that congregation, I will assume this. Their roots are so deeply sunk into the fertile soil of God's Word and promises that they will meet their trials clothed in the protection that God Himself provides. Will they realize that Jesus is with them in the storm? And my answer is yes, they'll realize it. John sixteen thirty three. when did Jesus speak it? Day before he dies. What does he say to his disciples? He says, I got something really important to share with you because I don't want you to fall away from the faith when this happens. He said... In this world, there will always be storms. But you take heart. I'm with you in the fire. I'm with you in the flood. I'm with you in the storm. And I have overcome everything that you'll ever face. Psalm 139, it says, God has us hemmed in. He's behind us. He's before us. Every circumstance in our past that makes us who we are today. God was there in every circumstance since the moment you were conceived. And the future which you and I don't know, God does. And he's standing there in the future in a circumstance that you're going to go through. And when you come to that circumstance, he's already going to be standing in the middle of it. And he's going to say, take my hand. We're going to walk through this together. 
As David said in Psalm 23, even if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, God is already in that valley. And when I put my first foot in it, He's got me by the hand. What suffering is knocking at their front door. Three. Persecution from outside the church. Do you remember why Paul and Silas are in prison in 49 A.D. singing their hymns at midnight? Do you remember why? Slave girl possessed by the demon can predict the future. The men who own the slave girl are making vast sums of money from her ability to predict the future. When the Apostle Paul sees her anguish cast out the demon, she is in heaven where before she was in hell. And those who are making all this money off of her, they were in heaven, but now they're in hell. They're bankrupt. What do they do? They go to the magistrates. They cannot tell the magistrate, he cast a demon out of this girl that we owned. Because the magistrate would probably say, that's a good thing. Instead, they make up false stories. They say this man is bringing in teachings that are contrary to Roman law. They're trying to stir up trouble against Rome. And the false witnesses went out and uh, Paul and Silas beaten severely, thrown into that jail. That's how they get there. That's how the jailer meets them for the first time. Those people are still around. When the Apostle Paul left Philippi, they were happy. When they heard two years later that he's rotting in prison in Rome, they have a big celebration. But guess what? Every time they see the servant girl... Now 13 years older. Every time they see her walking through the streets, they are enraged. And every time they see this church standing there and people entering the church, they remember what happened to them. And the fits of rage and the anger and the discord and the desire for revenge is strong within them. Those Christians in Philippi battled the secular world around them. There was a second persecution from outside. There was a group of Jews in Thessalonica. They detested Gentiles. Gentiles have no part in the kingdom of God. And if they want to be part, they need to be circumcised. Paul talked about false teaching coming into the congregation. As more and more people joined, you had individuals saying, the Gentiles shouldn't be in this church. And if they are, they need to be circumcised. And then they would do what they did to Jesus' disciples. I saw some of you eating food offered up to idols. And didn't the Apostle Paul tell you that was wrong? Didn't anyone tell you that it was wrong to eat food offered up to idols? They stir up trouble from within. The Judaizers, they stir up trouble from within the congregation. And Paul says to them, 
the false teachers have begun to arrive, and it will only get worse. And that is where he says to this church what he does to Ephesus. Ephesians 2, 4, By grace are ye saved through faith. That faith is not of yourself, it's a gift of God. To the church at Galatia, he said, I'm tired of your false teaching about circumcision and the Gentiles. Galatians 5, 6, In Christ Jesus there is only one thing that matters. Faith expressing itself in love. You got persecution from the outside. You've got Judaizers with their false teaching. You have a third problem that is arising in that church. And the third problem is power. The third problem is power. Doesn't matter what company you work with. Doesn't matter what school you're employed at. What hospital you work at. What church you belong to. You will always bump into people who desire power. Connie and I were at the pumpkin patch with the grandkids a couple of days ago. There was a lady there we started talking to. She used to be a nun when she was 19. At the age of 21, she left the nunnery. She got married, has children. I said, why did you leave the nunnery? She said, because of the wicked dissension that occurred between the priest and the nuns in the church. Power always comes into play. Pastor Schauer, reading last week's gospel, do you remember? Jesus and the disciples are walking on the road. The disciples begin to argue about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. When they stop for a lunch break, Jesus says, what were you guys talking about? It says they were embarrassed to tell him because they're talking about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom. It was at that time he grabs this little child and says, unless you're like a little child, you're not going to be part of the kingdom. If you want to be first, you must be servant of all. This is what began to happen in this church. You had individuals desiring power. And because power so badly corrupts, they were actually killing the church itself. The church at Philippi is the church of today. Battles from the outside, battles from the inside, false teaching. I want to close by looking at the last verse of that section, Philippians 1.29. It has been given you as a gift, the ability to believe in Him. Ephesians 2.8.9. By grace you save through faith, not of yourself, not of works, as any man should boast. It has been given you as a gift on behalf of Christ, the ability to believe in Him. No one can say Jesus is Lord, but by the Holy Spirit. And then it says this, 
It has been given you as a gift, the ability to suffer for him. Not only to believe in him, Lydia, servant girl, and Taylor, not only to believe in him, but it's been given you as a gift to suffer for his sake. What does that mean? There's an organization called Religious Liberty Partnership. It estimates that any between 20,000 and 100,000 Christians every year lose their life on this earth because of their faith. Between 20 and 100,000. And it says that between 8 and 12,000 missionaries every year lose their life because those missionaries preach Christ. I had a council of elders meeting this past week. I said, looking at this verse, how does someone suffer? One of the elders said, well, they suffer when the boss says, I want you to do this, and you say, I can't do that, and it ends up costing you your job. And in 40 years in the ministry, that's come across my plate some 10, 15, 20 times where someone has lost their job because the boss asked them to do something unethical. A girlfriend saying to a boyfriend, can't do that. An 18-year-old, a 28-year-old, a 35-year-old saying, I can't go there anymore on the weekend. It doesn't sit right with me. And then when that happens, you lose the boyfriend or the girlfriend. You lose that group of friends. Maybe you lose your job. That's suffering for the sake of Christ. But there's a more subtle way that suffering comes into play. The gentleman 25 years ago who said, Leave my house. Don't return. I'm so angry at God and at you that my Parkinson's has not been touched by his hands. My question to you is this. Will the suffering that 80% of you are going through at this time in your life, will it cause you to walk away from him? Or will you be like my mama when dad died. How does anyone go through this without God? She didn't say, how does anyone go through this without losing their faith? She said, how does anyone go through this without God? I've said it often, on Christmas Eve. On Christmas Eve, I see people who should not be here. Their husband just died. Their wife just died. The teenager was paralyzed in a car accident. He was just diagnosed with cancer. And here it's Christmas Eve, and they're all sitting in the pews. Why? Because when Satan sends suffering. God came swooping in and he took the suffering into his mighty creative hands and by the time he was through there was perseverance in faith there was maturity in character and there was hope 
that could not be quenched. God be with you this week as you study the church at Philippi. This week, the suffering that they will go through and what will happen as a result. Stand up, stand up for Jesus, church at Philippi. Hang on, church at Philippi. People at Trinity, hang on. The Lord whom you worship is with you in the fire, the flood, and the storm. In our Savior's name, amen. Would you rise for a moment? Keep us close to you, Lord. Never a moment for my grandchildren, Miles, Lucas, Laney, Cece. Never a moment for Josh and Rachel, for Connie or myself. Never a moment for anyone who is listening to this message or those they love. May there never be a moment, may there never be a circumstance in which we do not realize your presence, your peace, and your strength. In our Savior's name, amen.